The need we all have to create something, be it through art, music, story, technology, numbers, architecture, or even the forging of a meaningful life, is part of being human. We all create something in some form or another, and we've been doing it for a long time. In 2018, archaeologists excavating a cave in southwest Morocco uncovered beads made from shells. They were some of the world's oldest examples of jewelry. They were made by hands just like ours 150,000 years ago. That pull for the expression of creativity is inseparable from the human experience, and every so often we find someone so good, so adept at making manifest into art the ethereal thoughts and feelings we all share, which otherwise bounce around our minds as elusive wisps of wonder, we stop calling them artists and start calling them legends. Edith Piaf is one of those legends. She electrified audiences, awed them into silence, tears, and euphoria, as if under a spell only she knew how to cast. Her voice, her songs, her metier came together to bring the world a once-in-a-lifetime sound. Part of her appeal was the fact that she lived the tragedy, struggle, and hope in her songs. She was born in France in 1915 and lived hand-to-mouth for much of her life. She worked relentlessly in the true meaning of that word to hone her craft, often demanding her collaborators work throughout the night until the sound was perfect. And even when she should have stopped, she couldn't. She specialized in chanson réaliste, a style of French music which remained popular from the late 1800s throughout the end of World War II and often drew on themes of the poor and working class of Paris. She sang ballads, most of which dealt with love and the sorrow that comes with losing it. If you ever had your heart broken, Edith Piaf has a song for you. And if you never have, she could break it for you and hand it back to you at the end of a performance, welded back together by the fire of her voice. In France, it would be hard to find someone who hasn't heard of Edith Piaf. In the U.S., she is less known, though she had several tours throughout the country and wowed audiences full of some of our most noted celebrities, like Judy Garland, Billie Holiday, Charlie Chaplin, Joni Mitchell, and Louis Armstrong, who said, after a particularly fiery performance, that Edith Piaf had ripped his heart out. Her life was just as astounding as her music, from watching her mother sing for their food in the streets of Paris to traveling with her acrobat father with the circus as a child. She learned from birth how to capture an audience. Her story is largely one of survival. The twin themes of tragedy and love so often found in her songs were no coincidence. Songs like Je ne regrette rien, I regret nothing, and La Vie en Rose, Life in Pink, are probably her most recognizable. And I beg of you that after this, you listen to them both, even if you already know them, because after learning the history of her life, they will evoke an even greater sense of awe. Obviously, I'm a fan. Not everyone was. She did have critics. Everybody does. Back then, just like now, the papers loved a scandal, and Edith gave them a few. 
though she seemed to have the ability to brush off the stigma of social judgment as if it were a fly innocuously buzzing through her house on a hot day. I cannot wait to tell you her story. This will be a two-parter. I just couldn't fit everything about her life into one episode that wasn't two hours long. So the finale will be available three weeks after this one. Now, let's examine the life of a legend. This is the true story of the great chanteuse, Edith Piaf, who knew better than anyone how to sing her way through a broken heart and still somehow find a way to love again. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. The world was holding its breath in December of 1915. World War I had erupted over a year before. And on December 19th, just five days before the last Australian troops were evacuated from Gallipoli, Edith Piaf was born to an acrobat and a street singer. Her name, Edith, is pronounced Edith in France. Since pronouncing it that way, even after lots of practice, I still end up sounding unintentionally pompous, I'll be using the anglicized pronunciation for this series. If you're a native French speaker listening to this podcast, and I can see there are a few of you based on my Podbean statistics, that's probably going to make you want to throw your earbuds in a river. So my apologies that my Michigan accent wins out, and I won't be perfectly pronouncing Edith or Edith's name in this episode. But honestly, her story is so phenomenal, I don't think my accent can ruin it. Edith's story has been told before, in movies, plays, and several biographies. The best biography I found, and the one I used as the main source for this episode, is the 2011 biography by Carolyn Burke, called No Regrets, The Life of Edith Piaf. Burke was first introduced to the work of Piaf while she was still alive, in 1959, using her songs as a way to learn French while studying in Paris. 48 years later, while standing at Edith's grave in Père Lachaise Cemetery, next to her friends and family gathered on the anniversary of her death, Burke decided then to write a biography. Writing the book took her three years, and she was given access to previously unreleased sources of information, like letters Edith wrote to her mentor and several of her lovers. She also met numerous collectors and was given access to archives with extremely rare material, like home movies and recordings not available anywhere else. I highly recommend this book, as it's probably the most accurate biography out there, and does a great job of corralling the many other sources on Edith, some of which are contradictory and, given their penchant for myth-making, less reliable. The most famous rendition of Piaf's life is probably the 2007 film La Vie en Rose. Burke had some issues with the movie, including their overemphasis on Edith's addictions, which she felt distorted her legend and compromised truly showcasing her artistry. I liked the movie, and I thought the actress Marianne Cotillard was incredible. Her role as Edith won her an Academy Award for Best Actress, and she deserved it. But I absolutely understand why Burke doesn't like the film. It surprisingly skips some important details on the star's life, like the fact that Edith helped shelter many Jewish friends during World War II, 
and played a huge role in the French resistance by smuggling false identity cards into Germany at the height of the war to help prisoners of war escape. She saved lives this way, at the risk of losing her own. Edith also mentored several artists who would go on to celebrated fame. They probably wouldn't have without her tutelage. She also wrote nearly 100 songs on her own, which were set to music by her favorite collaborators, including Marguerite Monod. The two of them, according to Burke, became the first known female songwriting team of their kind. None of this was touched on in the movie, which chose to focus solely on the tragedy of her childhood, love affairs, and addictions. Burke's book focuses on deconstructing the myth around her life and emphasizes the important aspects glossed over by the film and previous renditions of her life and career. It's my intention that this podcast will likewise be an honest, thorough tribute to her life. That life began as modestly as it could have. Edith's early life is blurry, even she didn't remember much of it. Either that, or she chose not to talk about it much. She was born in Belleville, a diverse, working-class neighborhood which French singer and actor Maurice Chevalier called the capital of the outskirts of Paris. According to Burke, Piaf told a reporter her mother nearly gave birth to her on the street. This story later turned into a myth of her mother literally giving birth to her right on the street. However, in the city hall of the 20th arrondissement, there's a document signed by a nurse and two hospital employees stating that at 5 a.m. on December 19, 1915, Edith Giovanna, her birth name, was born to her mother, Annetta Giovanna Maliard. She was listed as a singer, and her father, Louis Gassion, who was not present at the birth, was named as an acrobat. Piaf was a stage name that would come later. According to Burke, Edith was named after the war hero Edith Cavell. She was an English nurse who was executed by a German firing squad two months before Edith was born for organizing an escape route through Belgium for wounded soldiers. During the next World War, Edith Piaf would live up to the heroics of her namesake. While the circumstances of Piaf's birth have been exaggerated, her poverty and constant struggle of living hand-to-mouth are not. Her father was absent for her birth because the good-looking, less-than-five-foot-tall contortionist and acrobat was fighting in the trenches of eastern France during World War I. He would miss most of the first several years of her life. Even after the war, her father was often absent, working as a traveling acrobat with various circuses and dealing with a drinking problem. Edith came from a long line of circus entertainers. Her father got his start in the Gassion family circus in the 1890s, and before he was called to active duty, he worked for his father, Victor, Edith's grandfather, an equestrian who directed the circus along with Edith's grandmother, Louise Leontine. Louis's four sisters, Edith's aunts, all worked as trapeze artists. Her mother, Annetta, known as Lean, met her father in 1914, just a year before she was born. Her mother also came from a line of entertainers. Louis met her at a fair, where, according to Burke, she was selling sweets and singing for whoever would listen, while her mother, Edith's maternal grandmother, Aisha, a Moroccan Berber sideshow artist, earned coins by showing off her menagerie of fleas she carried around in a matchbox. 
by that time, her maternal grandfather, an animal trainer, had passed away. It's possible the two young lovers, Louis and Lean, found a connection in their pasts and their similar family histories. The two were married September 4th, 1914. Two days later, Louis left to fight in the war. Left in poverty, Lean provided for her newborn daughter the only way she knew how, by singing in the streets of Paris. Her mother specialized in la chanson réaliste, the same genre of music of which Edith would become queen years later. Her mother was only 20 years old when she had Edith. Like Edith's father, Louis, she had a penchant for red wine. Many people did, as it was the only way to keep warm and escape the encroaching war, which by now was affecting everyone. Food was becoming scarcer, and heating was a luxury reserved for those who didn't have to make a living by singing on the street or carrying around fleas in a matchbox. It quickly became apparent that Edith's mother wasn't interested in being a mother. At least, that was my takeaway after reading about her childhood. Edith would be left at home most of the time. Lean was more interested in singing and drinking wine than caring for her daughter. By 1918, when Louis came home from war, Lean had abandoned Edith, having left her in the care of her grandmother Aisha, who often left the toddler alone while she was out cleaning apartments, since the fleas in the matchbox bit wasn't paying the bills. She was as interested in being a grandmother as Lean was in being a mother. By the time Louis returned, Lean no longer wanted to be a wife either. Louis came home to a greatly malnourished and ill three-year-old, and Louis wasn't all that interested in being a father. Thankfully, he was at least keen on seeing Edith survive childhood, and if she had continued in her current state, it was definitely possible she would have died before the age of five. He too would abandon her for quite some time, but not before putting her in someone else's care. Most of the people who were supposed to love Edith would abandon her in some way in her earliest years. This lack of love and neglect would affect her psychologically for the rest of her life. Louis, possibly accompanied by his retired acrobat sister Zaza, took Edith to Bernay in Normandy. His parents, Edith's grandparents, had retired here after giving up the traveling circus lifestyle. Bernay was a conservative town, and the people there gossiped about the Gassions, their old way of life, and especially their new one. Edith's grandmother, Leontine Gassion, known as Mamantine, had become the manager of a brothel. Though the townsfolk found this wildly inappropriate, it didn't keep them from taking advantage of the brothel's services when their neighbors weren't looking. Louis would leave the three-year-old Edith here to live in the three-story brothel with her grandmother for the next four years. Her grandmother, Mamantine, like the rest of her relatives, wouldn't show Edith the warmth she needed and craved. However, the women who worked in the brothel doted on her. According to Burke, some of the women at the brothel may have had their own children taken away from them, and this three-year-old, abruptly dropped off by her father, would have been a welcome distraction from their own set of problems. Despite the atmosphere being cloaked in cigarette and pipe smoke, while customers sipped absinthe and listened to the booming of the player piano, Edith began to heal. 
Although her illness was leaving her, Edith couldn't seem to shake a terrible eye infection. She could barely see out of either of her eyes. In remembering this time later, she said she lived in a world of sounds, navigating her way around by putting her hands in front of her to protect herself, directing all her movements based on the sounds around her. Her vision was so poor that eventually a doctor was called. He said she was suffering from acute keratitis. Caused by bacteria or the herpes virus, her keratitis was causing inflammation in both her corneas. Today, keratitis is easy to treat, but for a long time before antiviral drops and antibiotics were available, keratitis could cause permanent damage and even blindness if left on its own. The doctor prescribed an ointment for Edith, but it would take some time for her sight to recover. In the meantime, the women took Edith with them while they ran errands and managed the house, which gave Edith some sense of normalcy and consistency for the first time. They chipped in to buy her toys, and from the accounts I've read, genuinely seemed enthralled with the young girl. Not satisfied with the slow-working doctor's remedy, some of the women took Edith to the grave of St. Therese, which was nearby in Lisieux. Mamantine organized pilgrimages there every week where they would pray for Edith's recovery. Eventually, after some time using the ointment, her eyesight did recover. For the rest of her life, she would ascribe her healing to St. Therese and not the medicine she was using. Edith would retain a strong sense of faith throughout her life, taking St. Therese as her own patron saint. She attended elementary school for a few years, and she was a fast learner, though she didn't stay in school long enough to become more than semi-literate until adulthood. She was sharp, with a strong ability for memorization. This ability would come in handy later, as she wasn't able to read music, but could memorize any song after hearing it. School was not a fond memory for Edith. Everyone knew where she lived and what her grandmother did for a living. The other children threw rocks at her, mocked her, called her the child of the devil's house, as if she had anywhere else to go. Even during these early, difficult years, Edith already loved to sing. Neighbors would stop what they were doing to listen. According to Burke, on some nights her grandparents would take her to the local cafe, where they would stand her on a table and let her sing for the crowd. In these moments, Edith found the validation she was starved for. She learned early and quickly that, one, she could sing. I mean, really sing. And two, that singing was a consistent way to get the love and attention she lacked elsewhere. Singing brought her comfort, and it would be the most important thing in her life, all the way until the end. During these years, she did see her father, Louis, from time to time. Once Edith turned seven and was old enough to understand what was transpiring in the brothel, it was decided it was time for Louis to take Edith with him. This might have been his idea, no one is completely sure, and everyone involved is now past. Having a young child with him would have certainly inspired more generosity from patrons on the street as he performed his acrobatics, which was a tempting thought. It's also possible Maman Teen finally told him to take charge of his own child. Whatever the cause, that's what he did. Louis signed them up with the Caroli Circus in Belgium for a long tour. Edith, at seven years old, 
was joining the circus. Here, she would start learning the nuances of performance, and she'd learn exactly how to win a crowd. Edith loved to laugh, and she would always find a way to enjoy herself and the company of those around her. Even at age seven, after everything she'd already been through, somehow Edith had managed to retain a childlike sense of wonder and playfulness. Her father, Louis, would do his best to discipline those out of her. She said of her father, quote, Papa was not a tender man. I received my share of blows. Occasionally, he would show affection, and these moments were precious to Edith. The harder he was on her, the more she seemed to try and win his love. Although now we would consider much of what Edith went through as child abuse, she did speak admiring of her father later in life. Life wasn't easy while they traveled. She woke up early and did the chores. There were other children for her to play with, children of other circus performers, and once they all had their various jobs done, they would play amongst the caravans and animal cages. Edith's father, Louis, was talented. She later said she believed he could have been incredibly successful if it weren't for his temper. Louis didn't like being told what to do. He didn't like having a boss. He wanted to go his own way in everything. He also didn't have much discipline, and his emotional immaturity made him difficult to work with. He didn't last long in the circus. He left Belgium, sold their trailer, and set off alone with Edith, traveling and working in France, wherever he could find a crowd. It was when the two were on their own that Edith began singing for crowds. And once he learned she could sing, which brought in money from crowds far more eager to give coins to a cute seven-year-old than a scrappy contortionist, her father began treating her better. He even used the money she brought in to buy her a doll one she'd seen in a store window, thinking there was no way a girl like her could ever have something that nice. The first song she ever sang for money was the French national anthem La Marseillaise. She said at the time it was the only song she knew all the words to. Her street performances doubled their income. Edith had seen her mother perform. She had watched her father, along with the clowns, animal tamers, and entertainers in the circus as they traveled. She had been learning as she watched, soaking all of it in, discovering how to charm a crowd and give an audience what they wanted. Once, a couple was so entranced by the young child's voice, they offered Louis 100,000 francs, essentially offering to buy her. He refused, telling them if they wanted a child, they should go make their own. Her father had relationships while they traveled, though he was still technically married to Edith's mother. Sometimes the women were kind to Edith, sometimes they were abusive. Eventually, one of Louis's girlfriends became pregnant, but they lost their son shortly after his birth. This was the second brother Edith had lost, though the first, a boy named Herbert, born in 1918, was still alive but he had been taken by state social services shortly after he was born. After her father and his girlfriend lost their baby, the 10-year-old Edith ran away. 
She took a train, telling the passengers her parents beat her, and she was running away to her grandmother's. Louis came after her, but not until she made it all the way back to Bernay, where her grandmother lived. I know adults who couldn't navigate their way across a whole country on trains with only pocket money, but it was no problem for the increasingly clever and self-reliant Edith. She knew how to read people. She had to know how. She grew up in a chaotic environment, several of them. The adults in her life weren't emotionally stable. Both her parents struggled with alcohol addiction, her mother with drug addiction, and she never had a stable home where she could actually feel safe. This could have caused her to become hypervigilant. According to psychology professor Dr. Matthew Tall, hypervigilance can be a trauma response for children raised in abusive environments. Abandonment, ridicule, constantly having any sense of stability taken away, all together with dodging the anger issues of her father, put Edith on guard constantly, as she was always having to scan for threats. I'm not a psychologist, but I wouldn't be surprised if part of the reason Edith was so good at reading people and working crowds was because she had to learn how to be acutely aware of the behavior of those around her in order to survive. And by age 10, Edith knew how to survive. Eventually, Louis traded life on the road for a life back in Paris. We don't know why. Edith's memory of her early years was blurred, and she changed her telling of things from time to time. According to Burke, they may have returned to Paris due to Louis's reconciliation with Edith's mother, Annetta, who now went by her stage name of Lean Marsa. When her mother approached her and asked for a kiss, the young Edith simply replied her father didn't let her kiss strangers. Louis had to tell her this was, in fact, her mother. Lean had just returned from a four-year singing tour in Turkey. She'd returned to Paris in the mid-1920s and managed to regain custody of Edith's brother, Herbert. Edith said that after they were introduced, her mother took them to a restaurant and tried regaining custody of Edith, but her brother years later claimed this was only wishful thinking on Edith's part. He said he went with their mother, and Edith went with their father. Her mother did become a part of her life once again, in a way. Lean had an agent now, and had moved away from street performing, making her way into the various cabarets and clubs around town. Like Edith would later, Lean specialized in chanson réaliste, ballads that drew on the life of the working class, tragedy, and love. While her mother was not nearly as famous as some of the other artists performing the same type of music, she was more accessible. People who couldn't afford tickets for big names could enjoy a night out watching the mother of Edith Piaf belt out ballads into the Parisian night. Lean was talented, but she would never be discovered, and her drug addiction only made success less likely. Edith said of her mother's career, quote, I've always thought that fate led me to the very career that my mother dreamed of, but could never manage. Not through any lack of talent, but because luck wasn't on her side." Unquote. We don't know if Lean coached her daughter or shared the secrets of their trade. We do know their family reunion wouldn't last long. She once again abandoned her son Herbert, who she left with friends until the welfare system took him once again. After this, Louis officially filed for divorce, 
giving the address of his residence as his mother's brothel back in Bernay. Then he and the now 13-year-old Edith once again set out for a life on the road. In 1930, when Edith was 15, her father met and lived with a woman only five years older than Edith. Her name was Yet. They relocated once again to Paris, and she gave birth to Edith's half-sister, Denise. Yet refused to marry Louis, despite the social stigmas of an unwed mother at the time. Edith ran away several times over the course of their relationship. Even when she was home, she spent most of her time away from the household. Like her mother before her, she sang in the streets of Paris, usually in Belleville. She was popular and often drew a crowd. She began to hone her skills here. She learned quickly, able to memorize a song after only hearing it a few times. People liked her charisma, her sass, and the way she could charm a crowd with witty repertoire. She had what was called a TT accent, typical at the time of the poor working-class Parisian neighborhoods. This made her even more appealing to the diverse crowds in the streets and cafes where Edith formed her first repertoire of songs. According to Burke, when Edith turned 16, Paris was under the tightening grip of the Great Depression, which had made itself felt in France. There weren't many opportunities for someone like Edith. She was poor, didn't have much of an education, and lacked any middle-class manners. By this time, Louis had agreed to let his daughter have her own apartment, as long as she could pay for it on her own. She tried a few times to hold down a job in several different creameries, but usually ended up being fired after only a few days. I couldn't find exactly why. I wonder if Edith, like her father Louis, didn't like being told what to do after so many years of wayward living. Eventually, Edith met a friend and wanted to hire her to help pass the hat as she sang, the same way she had done for her father when he'd been performing. Apparently, two people, even if one wasn't performing, made more money than a single person going solo. The young girl agreed to work for Edith. At 14, she was two years younger than Edith. She was a gymnast, but was currently working at a factory assembling car headlights. Burke describes her appearance as plain, with narrow, darting eyes. Her name was Simone Berteau, though she went by Mamone. She and Edith would remain friends for years, tumultuously. Mamone would grow jealous and increasingly resentful of Edith's success and leave her side several times, sometimes causing damage as she went. Eventually, Mamone would write a highly contradictory and greatly critiqued book about their years together, where she claimed she was Edith's half-sister. We know she wasn't, and if you're looking for an accurate biography on the life of Piaf, you won't find it in Mamone's account. According to Burke, Piaf years later said Mamone was her mauvais genie, or evil spirit, who brought out the worst in her. But for now, Mamone offered Edith the companionship she needed, something she wasn't used to getting. Perhaps this is why Edith would always forgive Mamone's outbursts. The two traveled around Paris looking for crowds and avoiding the police, as street singing was illegal. Sometimes the two would be arrested, but after Edith belted out a few songs at the police station, they would be let go. There were more pressing matters, beside two young girls singing for coins. Inevitably, Edith fell in love for the first time. 
His name was Louis Dupont, known as Petit Louis. Eventually, they moved in together, and at first, things seemed to be as perfect as a love song, though their furnishings were Spartan at best. They'd eat from tin cans Edith warmed up on a hot plate, go see Charlie Chaplin movies with Edith completely unaware he would be in her audience one day. Louis worked as a delivery boy and would steal small things they needed, like plates and cutlery. Shortly after they began living together, Edith became pregnant. Now in need of extra money, Edith took a job at a boot factory, but was let go after they found out about the pregnancy. She was 17 when she gave birth at the same hospital where she was born. On February 11, 1933, the couple's daughter, Marcel, was born. Though she was still a child herself in many ways, Edith loved Marcel, who they nicknamed Cécile. Edith went back to performing in the street since this brought in more money than Louis' delivery job. Petit Louis didn't like this, and their relationship began to unravel. Edith eventually left Petit Louis, though both he and Edith's father and stepmother tried talking her out of it. But when Edith made up her mind, good or bad, that was that. The two, however, did continue to raise Cécile together. Edith didn't want to abandon her daughter as her own mother had done. Eventually, Edith was offered a gig to sing at a club called Lulu's. Edith jumped at the chance, though Petit Louis hated the idea, as Lulu's was known to be a lesbian bar, as well as a place where prostitutes were said to find clientele. Edith wasn't bothered by anyone's sexuality, at least as far as I could tell. She didn't care if Lulu's was known as a lesbian bar. She cared that it was a real job. She was used to diversity, and she wasn't one to judge, especially since she knew what it was like to be an outcast herself. Petit Louis, however, said it was him or the job. She chose the job and took Cécile with her, moving to Pigalle, another neighborhood in Paris. She and her daughter moved in and out of hotels, sometimes with Mamone. Eventually, she set up residence at the Régence, a place known to be a meeting place for Le Milieu, the French Mafia. Lulu was a hard boss, often docking Edith and Mamone pay if they were even minutes late. Often they would work until dawn, with Edith sometimes singing in the street after her performance at Lulu's. One morning, after returning home from work, the hotel receptionist told her that her husband had come while she was away and taken their baby. Edith and Petit Louis were not married. He may have just told the receptionist that so he wouldn't be arrested for kidnapping. He told Edith if she wanted to see her daughter again, she had to come back to him. This was an exceptionally heartless kind of blackmail. Edith refused to return to Louis, but she did send him money so he would give Cécile the care she needed. Without Cécile, Edith felt a painful void in her life, a life that wasn't getting any easier. Pigalle was a sketchy neighborhood at the time, and it could be dangerous. There was a tavern called Eau Claire de la Lune next to the hotel. It was a regular spot for the Mafia to congregate. Here, Edith met a man named Henri Vallette, though Edith called him Albert, and his street name was Alibaba. He was a pimp and a criminal, and he told Edith he could help protect her from the more unsavory patrons in Pigalle, 
but also told her she was now working for him. Edith was not in any way interested in selling herself for money. She paid Villette with money she received from singing, though sometimes she also had to help him steal. She would find well-dressed women in the various clubs, then Villette, who was good-looking, would charm them until he got them alone and stole their jewelry. This made Edith an accomplice, which made it extremely difficult for her to break their association, even when she wanted to. In the meantime, she was hired by a new club, the Petit Jardin, which was another meeting place for the Mafia. The crowds loved her, but her relationship with Valette was becoming a problem. She was 18 now, and after a friend of hers drowned herself in the Seine rather than work the streets for Valette, Edith no longer wanted anything to do with him or anyone involved with the Mafia. She told Valette she would no longer be working for him. He said he would kill her if she didn't. She said, go right ahead. Some days later, he showed up with some henchmen and pointed a gun at her. She dared him to use it. He did. According to Burke, a bystander deflected the shot, but it still grazed Edith's neck. She walked away, and Valette decided his honor had been satisfied. She was finally free of Le Milieu. By now, Edith had begun seeing a string of lovers, some lasting longer than others. She would constantly go from one relationship to the next throughout her life, sometimes beginning a new one before the old one was even finished. She said once, quote, I had a desperate, almost morbid need to be loved. After having been abandoned several times in her early years, experiencing abuse, abject poverty, and the low points of Pigalle, Edith would always struggle with feeling unloved. Speaking of abandonment, Edith's mother, Lean, was also singing in Pagal at the same time as Edith. Lean approached Edith every so often, asking her daughter for money. If Edith refused, her mother would scream curses at her until she got what she wanted. Edith would give her mother money many times, and she was still paying for the care of her daughter, Cecile, as well as her own room and board. This was a lot of pressure for a teenager. The only solace she found was in her songs. She also kept her faith in St. Therese of Lisieux, the same saint she believed helped cure her eyesight all those years ago. One day in 1935, two years after her daughter's birth, Petit Louis arrived at one of Edith's performances to tell her Cécile was sick. Edith rushed to the children's hospital. Cécile had meningitis, a serious diagnosis. Edith stayed up and prayed all night for a miracle. But by the morning, her daughter had died. This was one of the darkest periods in Edith's life, and she would carry the loss of her daughter with her for the rest of her life. She put all the pain, all the heartache, all the misery into her songs, and people were noticing. She'd been singing in clubs and cabarets for three years now, since her first real job at Lulu's. As tumultuous as these years were for Edith, they were increasingly troublesome for her country, too. Hitler was on the rise, unemployment was growing, and so was anti-Semitism. But at least for Edith, things were about to get better. In October of 1935, when she was 19, she and Mamone were singing on the street when she was approached by a man named Louis Leblay. 
he asked her to come audition for his cabaret, called Le Gernis. Le Gernis was a chic establishment near the Champs-Élysées. Although Edith was incredibly nervous to audition, she was magnificent. He offered her a job singing for 40 francs a night, as long as she learned some new songs and wore some more presentable clothing. She immediately agreed. Soon, Louis became more than a boss. He became her first real mentor. Unlike the other authority figures in her life, Louis was kind. He was patient, rehearsing with her each afternoon as they worked on her repertoire. Eventually, he even took her shopping, choosing a simple black dress for her stage performances, a look she would keep for the rest of her life. For what may have been the first time, Edith found a healthy father figure and a friend who was genuine and wouldn't take advantage of her in some way. They shared a mutual trust, sympathy, and both had the same bad taste in men. Finally, she was ready for her big debut. Though nearly paralyzed with stage fright, Edith belted out everything they had practiced together, and she had done it perfectly. Louis Leplay was the first person to suggest the name Piaf, which is slang for Sparrow. Edith had various stage names before, but now she needed something permanent, something real, something that fit the raw yet heavenly voice belting out in pitched perfection from this malnourished, four-foot-ten-inch girl who sang for coins on the street. Now she was no longer Edith Gassion. She was La Môme Piaf, the Little Sparrow. And the world would know her name. Even after her remarkable performance, Edith still lacked confidence. Louis reassured her, counseled her, and assured her that with some more hard work, she would be just fine. Through Louis, Edith made important connections. There was Jacques Bourget, who quickly became a friend and another mentor. He would help Edith with learning proper French, almost in an Eliza Doolittle kind of way. He would also write songs for her. There was also Jacques Canetti, host of the popular Radio Cité radio program. After having her sing on the air, so many people called in to ask who she was that she returned to the show every Sunday for 12 weeks. Within the month, reporters were coming to Le Gernis to interview her. Audiences liked that she was unrefined, that her clothes were poor, that she came from a life of poverty. Her appeal reached beyond class barriers, and people from every walk of life seemed to find something they could like about this burgeoning little sparrow. The day before she turned 20, she recorded her first record, complete with four songs, with Jacques Canetti, the same man who'd had her on his radio program. Not long after that, she recorded eight more. Later that month, she made a cameo in the film La Garçon. According to Burke, it was a movie about a woman who leaves an arranged marriage to experience life in Pigal. In the movie, the woman frequents lesbian bars like Lulu's, and this is where the young Edith sings on film the song Cond Mem, surrounded by a group of female admirers. While taking advantage of all these opportunities, Edith kept singing at Louis Legernes. She now called him Papa Louis, and the two became one another's confidants. She opened up about the death of her daughter, he about his mother's death, and his time in the military. Edith's daughter and Papa Louis's mother were buried in the same cemetery, 
and they would go visit the graves of their lost loved ones together. Sometimes grief can be a little easier to bear when it's shared. She kept booking bigger and bigger gigs. A gala in Paris, a charity ball in Cannes was in the future. Things were finally happening. But it wasn't easy for Edith to completely leave behind her former life in Pigalle. Papa Louis didn't like that she still associated with her old peers from Pigalle, lowlifes in his opinion. One night, Papa Louis had a bad dream. I couldn't find what that dream was about, only that it gave him a sense of foreboding so sharp that Edith had to assure him everything was okay, even promising that she'd go to bed early that night after her show. She didn't. She ended up heading for the streets of Pagal afterwards. She was supposed to meet Papa Louis the next morning, but was running late. She phoned him, but was surprised to hear an unfamiliar voice on the other end, telling her to come at once to Louis' apartment. When she arrived, there were police officers in the building. One of them led her up to Louis' apartment. The door was ajar, and inside, the body of Papa Louis, her friend and mentor, laid lifeless. There was a bullet hole where his eye had been. Her beloved Papa Louis was dead, and now Edith was a murder suspect. Don't you love it when you're left with a cliffhanger? I was going to try and get further in her story, but you know how much I love details. I believe the details of a life are where all the magic is hidden. This will only be a two-part series. Originally, I wanted this to be a one-episode story, but Edith's life is so rich and fascinating that I have to make this a two-parter. I would have loved to end this episode with a song of Edith's, but after looking for hours for something of hers that was in the public domain, it looks like everything is still under copyright. That means it's way too expensive for me to play on the podcast, and I'm too scared of accidentally committing copyright infringement. But please check out at least one of her songs if you aren't familiar with her stuff. La Vie and Rose is fabulous, and Je ne regrette rien is my personal favorite. Apparently, it's a popular song on TikTok right now, because it was used in the Netflix series Wednesday, in the scene where Wednesday releases piranhas into a swimming pool full of jocks who bullied her brother. I can only guess, but I think Edith would have gotten a kick out of that. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I know you have a couple million to choose from, so the fact that you actually took time out of your day to listen to this one is incredible. If you like the show, please consider rating and following on iTunes or wherever you listen. This really does help make the show more visible, and I'm terrible at self-promotion, so every review and subscriber really helps. I'll be back again in three weeks with the finale on the extraordinary Edith Piaf. Until then, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, I guess, but I don't post there too much. You can also find me on Instagram, and I try to post there more often. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. 
Background music and sound effects are licensed through Envato Elements, theme song through Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay smart, stay curious. And until we meet again, my dear friends, go make some history.